Think about when you're applying for a job, for example. The common advice is you might modify your resume for the job. And so the, the same is the same is true when you're when you're pitching to investors, right? You're always going to have to uh, change your 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 pitch just a little bit so that it suits that audience. And um, and then you you always have to remember, like investors, they have their their own motivations, right? If you're talking to an angel investor who's who's investing their own money, they're going to be motivated a certain way. Um, if you're talking to VCs who are investing other people's money. Um, they're going to be motivated in different ways as well. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Whether you're an entrepreneur, investor, lawyer, or even an engineer, knowing how to tell your story can be critical to your success. Having worked in all these professions at one point in his life, Peter Sokaras firmly believed this, and he can attest to it. From patent attorney to vice president and deputy general counsel at Nefro, Peter's multifaceted career trajectory has had one common denominator, a dedication to the life sciences. In addition to his leadership roles at the medical device company Nefro, Peter now works as an angel investor. His focus is investing in early stage health tech companies that bring the decision making to the patient. In this episode, Peter shows how making meaningful contributions to the life science space starts with asking yourself why your technology matters. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining me on a rainy day. And I'm sure by the time we publish your podcast, it will be sunny uh, that the rain has gone by. But I can't believe how much rain we got this year. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. And so um, I always like to start um, with our listeners about a little bit about your background, um, how you chose this path of your career. And did you ever envision that? This is where you want to be. Sure, sure. Um, so I've dedicated the last uh, twenty plus years of my life to the to the life science space. Uh, first as first as an engineer, uh, then as a patent agent, uh, patent attorney. I'm currently the uh, vice president and deputy general counsel and assistant corporate secretary at Nevro. Um, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but most recently, I've also been uh, I joined Life Science Angels and have been doing some uh, angel investing as I look to continue to expand kind of my, my, um, reach in the space. Um, but I think, I think, uh, I think my story really starts with, um, with sort of my, my family upbringing. I was, uh, uh, born and raised in Miami, Florida. Uh, my parents were a Cuban immigrant. Um, um, they immigrated from Cuba in their teenage years and, and, and met in Miami, Florida. And, um, that, that, uh, that has a lot um, to do with sort of my background and kind of uh, where where I've where I've uh, come to, you know, a lot of early learnings from from my from my family, and I'm sure we we can get into all of those stories. Um, did I ever want to do something outside of life science, the life science space? That's that's an interesting uh, discussion. My 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 dad was a doctor, 
and he always kind of pushed me in 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 that direction. So I think there was a little bit of of nudging into that space, uh, but I don't think I had the chops to to ever be a doctor. So so my career has taken uh, uh, different paths uh, over the years. I find it's, it's, there's many people who are taking becoming a patent attorney. Oftentimes they have a background on the technical background and what prompted you to think like, this is the route that I want to be doing practicing law rather than the technical aspect? Well, a, a lot of patent attorneys have the same um, um, experience that I have where some of it is just by accident and some of it is just by serendipity. And a, a little bit of that was was my history. I was working as a uh, graduate student uh, at the University of Miami, uh, working actually on a program for testing heart rate variability uh, at a trauma center. But I was not happy to be working at, at a trauma center. It was, it was not right for me. Um, and I happened to meet um, one of the um, lead attorneys at Cordis Neurovascular down there in Miami, Florida. Uh, he was a patent attorney back there. And to be 100% frank, I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about patent law back then. But uh, but it was it was uh, soon after September 11th. It was very difficult to to find a job uh, back then in, in the economy back then. And he said to me, "Look, Peter, if you know how to write, I can teach you the I can teach you the ropes. I can teach you patent law. Uh, uh, come on in." And I took a chance. I took a chance, and I um, and I and I joined Cordis as um, really as as an intern at that point. But at that, but with the patent law, you can take the patent exam and become a patent agent and work as an as an agent without having to to go to law school first. So I did that. That's how I sort of started my career, um, and it was it was really pretty amazing uh, to dive into kind of the strategy of it all. I, I, that's the first thing that that just kind of uh, made me fall in love with the practice. Um, also, the variety, the opportunity to just um, engage in many different types of, of technologies and you're working with one thing one day and, and, and another the next. Um, but he, he really pushed me to, to leave Miami, Florida, because at that time, the industry was sort of leaving uh, Miami. I know Miami's really become kind of a hotbed uh, these days and, and is doing really well. Um, but back then, he was really kind of pushing me, urging me to, to go and get trained at more of the um, the sort of legal hubs, New York, Washington, D.C., what have you. And so I got into um, GW, uh, George Washington uh, University Law School, and um, I eventually landed at a law firm out there in what, what they had to put to call the student associate program. So I, I worked full time and I went to I went to law school at night. Uh, so it took me a little bit longer than than traditional um, uh, law school paths. But I got a chance to really get an incredible amount of experience uh, uh, through that through that process. Um, um, I did both um, patent prosecution and patent litigation at that time, and that really gave me an opportunity to um, um, to learn a ton about sort of the strategy of the of the business and and lessons that I I live with uh, through this through this day. What was the strategy of the business that you learned? That you yes. still use still these days. So I think one of the things that really benefited me was from the opportunity to um, have experience not just in um, 
prosecuting patents to, to basically obtain them, but in litigating them and also to litigate across industries, which was, uh, which was really unique. In doing that, I started to learn kind of some of the universal things about, about the, uh, the practice that, that, like I say, I live um, with to these days. I think the most important of which is telling a story. Um, the, the, the little secret about patent law that, that, um, that I'll share with you and, and listeners today, it's, it's a, it's a law that has been, that has been developed with the, with the ideal of trying to be objective. Um, there's this ideal and there's this attempt in the law to say, okay, if you do A, B, and C, um, you're on your way to being able to protect this technology. The reality is, um, the decisions in the space are based on patent examiners at the patent office, then patent judges, uh, judges and juries in district courts, and judges at the at the, uh, the appellate courts. The reality is that this this objective ideal is played out through subjectivity in in human beings, and so being able to tell a story, being able to actually touch human beings with um, with your, um, your, your technology, with your development, why does it matter? Why should they care? Why should they be listening? All of those things I think are, are super critical when it comes to, um, uh, being successful in this space. And I think it's been, uh, um, it's been a huge driver for, for success at, at Nebro, for example. The, the, at least my, uh, my thought, my idea is that when, you read a patent. It's always very dry language. Mm-hmm. And it's very boring to read if it's not meant to be like a storytelling to get. So when do you say that? Like what part is it that it, the importance of storytelling is important? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll I'll uh, give you the example of of, of the Nepro story um, as, as an example. So spinal cord stimulation goes back decades. And Nevro's, Nevro's in the spinal cord stimulation space for the treatment of chronic pain. And, and classic spinal cord stimulation delivered pulses into the spinal cord at what's called low frequency, so 40 to 50, 60 hertz, with the idea of generating this thing called paresthesia, which is like a tingling sensation and white noise to the brain um, that, that would often mask the area of pain. So if you had a pain in your left hip, You'd cover that area of pain with that paresthesia, that tingling sensation, um, and it had the effect of sort of um, uh, blocking the brain or, or confusing the brain so that you didn't feel pain. Um, well, Constantino uh, Salataris, the, the founder of Nevro, asked the question, what if instead of delivering this at 40, 50, 60 hertz, what if you delivered it at 10,000 hertz, orders of magnitude greater? Um, what happens? Well, some of the original thought leaders in this space said, well, you can't do that. Uh, there's all sorts of unintended consequences. You can't go there. Uh, you can't go to those, 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 those frequency levels. Well, he said, I'm going to try it. He, he was, he was a true maverick in the space. He, he was an outsider from the spinal cord stimulation space. And, um, and he said, let's, let's give it a go. The, the result of which is this, is a fascinating kind of moment in this company's history. Um, the very first patient, she had an, uh, an old device implanted, and we unplug her device and we plug in the Nevro device. 
And her first reaction was, sorry, guys, your, your device doesn't work. I don't feel the, the tingling sensation. Um, go back to the, the drawing board. And after a lot of back and forth, we stop and, and, and finally somebody asks her, ma'am, but how's, how's your pain? And she sort of freezes in her tracks and she says, wait a second, I, I don't feel tingling and I don't feel pain. You know, this is, this is a remarkable moment. And, and this, this plays out with a lot of those first patients. You know, you hear stories about um, uh, whatever this takes, don't take it out of me. Don't please give me 10 more minutes. I feel normal. Um, it's really an incredible story. Now, if you take that story and you're just really dry and objective, then you're just saying, well, everybody always say, did you just turn the dial to 11? Did you just turn up the, uh, uh, turn the dial on the frequency and that's it? Well, no, when you see, when you see how this all plays out, when you see how the entire industry, you know, you had three dominant players in the market, uh, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, and, and at that time, St. Jude, now Abbott, all delivering the same uh, tried and true kind of paresthesia-based therapy. And then all of a sudden you get, you get this, this startup that is doing it orders of magnitude different. There's a story to tell there, right? And so, and so going to the patent office, you tell the story and people kind of understand, wow, this is, this is a solution to, to pain, to chronic pain. Uh, think about it when, when we, when we're sitting in a society with massive opioid problems um, and you're, and you're, and you're probably on the precipice of solving chronic pain. That's something important, and, and people listen. Um, and we've we've dealt with years and years of, of of litigation against our our fiercest of competitors, and we've had to tell this story over and over again um, in in to, to judges uh, at the patent office, judges in in the court, and um, at the appellate level. And um, I think it really has a, I think it really resonates uh, at every level when people see how this technology helps the individual. So going, going back to your question, that's where, um, that's where your patent attorneys kind of do their best is by finding that, that story to tell, that story to weave in and not just having a very dry um, process, a dry document that, that is sort of what you're saying is, is kind of boring at the end, at the end of the day. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So when you're saying when you're having the litigation, when you have competitors, probably things that you don't have the right to use the technology because they own the patent, et cetera, et cetera. And then the story that you just shared with me to show the efficacy of the product, is that what swayed the judge? Um, A big part of it. You know, a big a big part of um, our ability to to tell a story. Um, first of all, it starts with just getting people's attention, right? Um, just getting people to recognize that it's important, and then part of the story goes to, well, why is this different? Why is this having a meaningful impact 
on on patients' lives. I think I think in the life science space, and and this is true for um, whether we're talking about patents or whether we're talking about uh, uh, raising uh, investments or uh, hiring a team, is that ability to really get people to understand kind of what you're doing, um, uh, how you're impacting people's lives, and how you're you're sort of making um, things better for patients. I think it's really important all around. Um, and so that's that's one of the things I've really appreciated from a career perspective, being in the life science space, is that ability to or that 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 connection to purpose. Um, I think is really is really meaningful for for many reasons. So um, I think um, many people when they think about a patent attorney doing the IP is you know to make sure that your IP protected. And you represent a company, you need to litigate others who infringe on your patent or, you know, uh, defend the company when other things that you infringe on that patent. And you mentioned that your role now is like the deputy general counsel. What does it entail when it's, I guess, I'm just trying to share with the listeners, like when you're a lawyer in the company, what is the role of the lawyer in that company yeah, besides sure. protecting the company from being sued? Sure. So, so maybe it's worth talking about a, a company in terms of its evolution, right? So I joined Nevro just uh, right after its Series B uh, fundraise, and so I I was um, I was the first and only in-house counsel for a while, and um, and kind of lead led the team uh, for many years through. A Series C finance raise, um, uh, a debt financing raise, finally an IPO, and and some uh, secondary offerings. Um, and depending on where a company is during its evolution, its purpose and its and what it's trying to drive out of its IP strategy will always be different, right? So at the beginning, in the beginning days, it was all about it was all about capital raising, right? So what what why it benefits an organization to have an in-house uh, uh, counsel thinking through these issues is I got to sort of live and breathe every day the, the, the story and the strategy of the organization. And I was able to really kind of connect with what our objectives was to try to accomplish as opposed to just kind of the the dry legal um, uh, function of of getting a patent, right? So knowing, for example, that that our that our objective was capital raising, I knew exactly how we needed to position the company, how we needed to present ourselves to investors, so that we could say, okay, this is our strategy. This is why we're going to be successful in the long term, and um, this is why you should. This is why this is a worthy investment. Right. So you go from you go from that stage, you go through your IPO, then we then we had a commercial launch. So now we're in the market. And and then IP becomes actually part of the company's reputation, right? It was it was absolutely critical for us to have an exclusive offering, um, to break into the market with something different. Um, Christine, you'd you'd have to tell me if if you know of a different example, but um, a, a medical device startup to to break into uh, a market that had the three biggest players 
you know, Medtronic, Boston Scientific, and 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 now Abbott, and we're up to a um, you know plus or minus you know a percentage point here or there, up to about twenty percent market share. Um, it's a really it's a really unique story. It's a really um, uh, I don't know of any other uh, company that has had that that success. Um, and that that was based in part on our, our ability to have an exclusive offering and our ability to really base our reputation on that exclusive offering, um, show the data. We, we have incredible libraries, clinical data showing that this is, uh, this is better for patients. So we leverage both the clinical data and the exclusivity uh, offering to, to break into the marketplace. And then you, and then you have sort of the, the fast followers that, yeah, then you get into litigation and um, we've had to litigate against at least three of our uh, uh, competitors uh, that have come into the space uh, trying to um, trying to infringe our, our core technology. We've also leveraged some other technology for uh, ability to um, uh, monetize our IP, the, the non-core IP. We were able to, to monetize that against one competitor and in these in these difficult times where where cash is king, you know that 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 helps the balance sheet. So we've we've used IP all along the evolution of the company in really uh, strategic ways. You mentioned earlier about telling the story about the uh, the asset that you have with your IP. Thinking about a lot of the listeners who are early stage company, they have an IP, they need to raise money, and uh, I've seen a lot of time uh, when. Uh, company present, they would say like, this is how big the market is, the opportunity, the potential exit, da, da, da. And then they have one pager on the IP and then they just list the the IP, the patent numbers or pending patent numbers, and then just move on to the next. Yeah. What do you have suggestion in terms of when, you, especially when you're at the early stage, those are your big asset yeah. in addition to your team. How do you tell the story so that that becomes stronger? So, Christine, I see that I see that all the time, and um, and I would advise a, a different direction. So, the way that I the way that I like to think about this is, for a seed stage um, organization, there's always three or four true pillars of of success, and and three or four key key aspects of the business. That, that are going to make it successful, that are going to allow it to raise follow-on um, uh, capital. And, you know, IP is always, always uh, one of those. So I think it needs to be interwoven. You need to figure out what are your what are your three or four kind of pillars of success, whether it's a clinical uh, trial strategy, whether it's a go-to-market strategy, how does that interweave with IP? And then you want to, then you want to present them sort of all together in a in a cohesive story, not not as an afterthought, not as a, a last minute slide. So what does that what does that mean, kind of uh, more tactically? If if your critical component, your critical kind of um, commercial differentiator is, um, um, let's say for us, it's paresthesia free therapy. You want to talk about how your IP strategy covers that commercial that commercial differentiator, right? Um, so then you're talking about both. This is why people are going to buy this product. This is why it's protected. This is our clinical, um, this is our clinical path to get that labeling. Um, and then you're, you're talking about three key pillars there 
that tell the investor, okay, this is why this organization is going to be successful. The other thing that 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 presentation does is it shows investors the level of sophistication in the entrepreneur. You're you're showing that you know what's important. You're showing that you that you have sort of a focus on what's going to make it what's going to make a company uh, successful. And you want to be presenting that. You want to be presenting yourself as um, sophisticated and and a and a, a leader that knows how to focus an organization. Now, a lot of a lot of starters will tell you why I just don't have the funds for it. Understood. There's there's always that um, that balancing act of resources. Resources are always um, limited, but to be able to at least have a strategy with regards to what you're going to do and um, how you're going to proceed maybe after you get a capital raise. I think that that's really important to, to share with investors as well. Is this something that oftentimes the founders, they don't have the patent. Uh, I mean, they're not lawyers. They probably filed a patent licensing it from the university. Um, and what do you advise them to do on to come up with a strategy that cohesive with the story that they want to tell in order to help them raise the money? Yeah, the one thing that I think um, best serves entrepreneurs is to recognize the ecosystem that they're in. People have gone through these issues before, and there's an incredible amount of free help by way of mentors, advisors, you know, friends and, and other uh, colleagues that have kind of been through the process before, um, um, you know, organizations like, like yours, for example, providing kind of coaching and, and help. So to talk to people who have gone through the process before and talk to them about sort of what, what sort of mistakes have they made when, when presenting, what, what sort of things have they learned when presenting, I think that that's a huge resource because in those conversations and every time you talk to somebody, I'm not talking about the, the, the particulars about the technology, but what I'm talking about is how do I, how do I strategize about how I uh, build my startup and how do I strategize about how do I present myself uh, to, to, to investors and VCs? Every time you say that story, every time you, you give your elevator pitch, you refine it just a little bit more and you give the story just a little bit better and you refine your strategy just a little bit better. Um, and, and so I think that that's one thing that um, I think uh, entrepreneurs really should take advantage of is that the network and the ecosystem. And just, I've always been so happy to see how many people in the ecosystem want to help others. I think we're all in it to to, to really kind of advance um, uh, the life science space for for patients, and um, and so you get a lot of free help, you get a lot of free advice uh, out there. So now you you mentioned that you are an angel investors, um, and assume that would be early stage companies. Uh, can you tell me more about what kind of companies and what are the most common pitfall that you saw when you meet early stage company that you wish they knew yeah. or something that you've 
feel like you can coach them? Yeah, so um, I'll start kind of in my in my journey as as I've as I've picked up uh, angel investing. Um, I think, and I've I've been kind of working through through different theses and 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 trying to land somewhere. But I think what really prompted me um, to 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 start was just a recognition or or just a question actually that I'm asking myself as we see big tech kind of laying off. Uh, uh, tons and tons of engineers and putting a lot of talent out into the into the talent pool. As we see kind of a, a generation of folks being more purpose driven, is is life science about to go into a golden era where you know AI is finally there? You know, is 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 virtual reality or augmented reality? Have, have, we've been hearing about these technologies for years. But is it finally? Are we finally at a tipping point where it can make a meaningful difference um, uh, to to technology coming to patients, to drug discovery, and the like? So I've been looking at at those sorts of opportunities, whether whether there's uh, AI driven companies looking for for drug discovery, where there's just sort of better solutions for use of healthcare data, um, um, the, the the expansion of of health tech, right? Is now finally that that tipping point where we're giving the patient so much power in in their in their iPhones um, and in their smartphones to to really make a difference for their for their for, for their uh, treatment pathway. Um, so I've been I've been you know I've been I've been listening to a lot of pitches. If you ask me kind of some of the the pitfalls and the advice that I that I give to entrepreneurs. Um, one thing is really, really knowing your audience, um, understanding is this is this investor that I'm talking to is this group of investors that I'm talking to are they more focused on the data and the science or are they more focused on the clinical pathway or are they more focused on the go to market strategy and whatever it is, you really need to get to that point and present that idea. So to, to give you a couple of examples, um, you know, obviously not, not naming any names, but, but I've, seen, I've seen a handful of times where I've been in a group that gets presented and the group will say, well, we didn't even see the data. There was no data. And the, the entrepreneurs, the, the company, they had data. They just didn't present it in, those, in that 30 minutes that they had to, to give their pitch, right? And because they were focused on something else, they were focused on a, on a go-to-market strategy or they were, they were focused on something else. And they didn't present to the, that investor group what that investor group really cared about, right? Um, go-to-market strategy is, is another example. Um, you know, seed uh, stage companies might come out and, and present on their go-to-market strategy but the investors that they're that they're talking to, and I've been in these groups and, and had talks about it afterwards, it's like, no, uh, they're way too early to even be thinking about go to market. Really, what we're thinking about is how what's their funding strategy. So, so I think that that's really important is is uh, for the entrepreneurs to to maybe ask a lot of questions in advance of any time that they're they're about to do a pitch to kind of know what their audience is, know what their audience is looking for, um, so that they can. So that they can hit those points, and that they don't get that they don't turn off the investors um, um, by by not giving them something that they want. 
I think you're right because I think um, it's almost like a Goldilocks thing. You hear stories about like, well, I present data and then they say like, you know, this is too much information. I'm not interested in the data. I want to know how, you know, how are you going to get to the market? And yeah. because that's what they know. And sometimes it can be very frustrating if you're an entrepreneur is that everybody push you to different direction. People who care about the data say, oh, you have to present the data. People who care about the go-to-market strategy say, like, I want to see that. So are you suggesting that company when they present to you is to have the conversation with you so that they have some idea what kind of thing that you care the most and then go from there rather than go start with their pitch? Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's the best uh, path. If if you have an opportunity to learn who your investors are before you pitch, I think I think it's critical. Um, and it it could be just a, f- a few questions. You know what 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 would you like to see? You could present uh, to an investor an outline. These these are the things I'm able to present uh, to you. What is the most important uh, thing for you? Right. Um, those few questions that you ask in advance, I think, would go a real long way. Um, and, you know, this is this is true. Think about when you're applying for a job, for example. The common advice is you might modify your resume for the job. And so the, the same is the same is true when you're when you're pitching to investors. Right. You're always going to have to uh, change your 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 pitch just a little bit so that it suits that audience. And um, and then you you always have to remember, like investors, they have their their own motivations, right? If you're talking to an angel investor who's who's investing their own money, they're going to be motivated a certain way. Um, if you're talking to VCs who are investing other people's money, um, they're going to be motivated in different ways as well. And and that those motivations even may change depending on what fund they're investing out of or or what time during the fund they're investing. So there's all sorts of kind of moving pieces, and you you just you really need to adapt to those um, to those moving pieces. So um, my next question, well, in case uh, some of the company are interested in pitching to you, what are your motivation? What are you interested in? Yeah, I think um, so. So for me personally, um, I want to know that there's a funding strategy. And I, I want sort of clarity and sophistication around how are you going to get to those, how are you going to get to those next uh, levels? So I think that that's, that's really important because uh, particularly during these days, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, risk, uh, sort of capital follow on risk uh, that, that these organizations are coming through. So that's, that's one, but, but maybe more basic uh, to me is um, um, I want to hear that uh, that the, the the problem that they're trying to solve is a real problem. Um, it's not just a sort of a technology play. They, they didn't develop a technology and are now looking for a problem to apply it to. The the the, the founders um, are addressing a, a real problem. Maybe they have a personal experience with that problem. Uh, those, those to me are always the ideal founders because there's going to be sort of that that personal drive and motivation for success. And then in the life science space, and and you know this, Christine, this is just me. I mean, you talk to 
10 different people, they'll give you 10 different answers to this question. In the life science space, so often you, you don't see founders take things all the way to, you know, commercialization. So what, what I want to know is sort of a, a, a founder group that can at least take it through series B is how I think about these things. Uh, can that, can that founder group successfully reach the milestones necessary to get, to get to series B? And, and my experience has been sometimes around that series B stage. Um, you often see the, the, the VCs at that stage, um, step in and, um, and insert kind of, uh, a fuller team, whether it's replacing a CEO or just adding additional resources, uh, to that sitting CEO, um, uh, to help the organization. So I, I want to know that that founder team can, can get to, uh, series B with the passion for the, for solving this, this, a true problem. And so what are usually the data point that you need or that you can gather if the founder team has what it takes to get to the series B? Yeah, that's, um, um, look, history is great, right? If, 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 if founders have, have done it before, that's, that's always, that's always fantastic. The, the, the problem with that approach is that you start to get sort of the, the homogeneity in, in repeat entrepreneurs, right? So, so I think as investors, we really need to look past that approach of just depending on, on history, depending on whether they've done it before. So then the next thing is the next thing that I, that I turn to is, do you find that grit in the person? What's that person's sort of life story? Um, can they show that they sort of had the grit and determination to do it? And then um, can they learn from others, right? Um, are, they, are, they, are they acceptable to, to coaching? Can they be coached? Can they be taught by others, right? So, so maybe a different way of saying is, is a combination of grit and humility at the same time, right? To, 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 to be able to persevere, but to also know that maybe they don't know all the answers, um, and they can they can reach out for help and, and get help from other folks because that's those are the people who are going to be successful in doing it for the first time right um, somebody who has sort of those characteristic traits I think are are important in order to to do it for a first time. Last question, but um, what are the areas in life science that you're interested in investing? Yeah, so so. Um, um, I think I've been looking at a lot of uh, health tech opportunities that kind of bring the decision making to the to the patient, right? How can we give uh, data to the patient to help them uh, own their care a little bit a little bit more, right? How can we facilitate giving the patient data so that um, so that they can uh, they can better use. Um, the healthcare services. I think that that's really important, um, particularly when we have such a uh, high demand on the health system. Uh, you know, for individuals to to help themselves as much as possible, I think I think it's really important. Um, and then along those same lines, technology AI that can help doctors make better decisions, whether it's in diagnostics um, or choosing the the right therapies. I think that those those tools. Are going to help the system kind of be more efficient and be able to um, to, to help uh, bring better healthcare across broader um, 
uh, pools of people. That's great. Well, um, sh- we're short on time, so, um, but um, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your insight and uh, your interest in investing. And really enjoy our conversation. Yeah, Christine, thank you very much. It was a, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.